All right. Today, we're going to talk about baseball. And I know there's some people who listen to this show and who listen to public radio who think they don't want to listen to shows about sports. And you are the people who are required to listen to this show because because I said so. That's why I even know the names at this point. This, this is sad and sick. I know the names of people who don't want to listen to this episode. Patrice Fitzgerald, you are required to listen to this episode. I don't want to hear any whining or fussing. It's like that. I can actually say the names of people who object to the idea of us talking about sports and specifically baseball. Well, anyway, uh, the postseason is upon us. It came upon us uh, last night, and it's going to keep going for a long time. Uh, and it does have a certain... I think this has, sort of has been kind of an amazing baseball season in a lot of ways. And I'm not just saying that because I like the Red Sox. Uh, but we have some people here who are funny, wonderful, insightful writers about baseball. Uh, and we are going to talk to them, and they're going to tell you all kinds of things that perhaps have escaped your notice. So joining us right now is Grant Fatbox Brisby. Actually, this is the last time I'm going to call him that. Uh, he's an editor at SB Nation. He joins us via the miracle of Skype. Whitney McIntosh is a writer also uh, at SB Nation's MLB, that's Major League Baseball, uh, desk. Uh, and so they're both with us. And, you know, Whitney, it seems to me that we should just begin by acknowledging that the postseason began last night. The Yankees uh, beat the A's in a wild card game. I guess you could say the postseason began with those other weird games between the wild card game and the end of the season. But the, And that you think even for A's fans, it's kind of a good thing that last night turned out the way that it did. Explain why that is. I do. Um, my outlook on the wild card game was everyone kind of assumed the Yankees were going to win that. Uh, you know, people hoped that the upset might happen. It could be, you know, fun for the A's to finally get that monkey off of their back of losing sudden death elimination games time after time after time in a row. Um, but when it comes down to it, the Yankees were a 100-win team who only didn't win their division by virtue of being behind, uh, you know, a 108-win team in the Red Sox, which is astonishing. So for them to have to have been in this play-in game, basically, in the first place, was frustrating for a lot of Yankees fans. And, you know, from my perspective, if they had lost it, we would have heard about it for weeks on end. Of they, You know, they could have beaten these teams in the AL. They should have never had to do it. Um, you know, if their pitching rotation gets messed up or something, we may very well still have to hear about it. But, you know, the A's were kind of the sacrificial lamb of us not having to live through that. Um, and, you know, it also set up that Yankees-Red Sox series that I think everyone uh, kind of appreciates, if not for rooting for the teams, then at least for the, the, uh, the coverage and the, uh, you know, interest of the series that we're going to get. So, you know, bad for the A's, but it was an interesting game for the most part until things kind of got out of hand and, uh, you know, the Yankees made it through as we kind of expected. You know, uh, for people who are listening who are a little bit baffled by all this because they don't follow baseball, we should just say that it, by happenstance, some teams ended up kind of tied at the end of the season and needed to play their way out of that situation. Then there was what's called a wild card game, which allows teams that did not finish first in their divisions uh, to qualify for postseason play. It's a one-game series, and now there'll be a divisional series, and then a league championship series, and then a World Series. And, you know, Grant, this has caused me to look at the entire scope of my life, which was a depressing thing to have to do. But, um, and you know, I became a baseball fan in 1967 when the Red Sox won the pennant, which was really great. And then they won the world. They lost the World Series, which kind of sucked. But, you know, that was it. 
and I realize that this all has to do with television and revenue and milking the cow in as many places as possible, including places that don't really dispense milk. You know, there just have to be all these things. But there's a messiness to all this. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel as though the path to a world championship is unnecessarily complicated. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. It's it's um. It's definitely more complicated now because there's more teams. When you're going back to the 60s, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, just 16 teams. And, and it's just it's it's the original teams kind of going after it. Um, one thing that I like to think about is the Giants of the 1960s. Uh, they had five Hall of Famers on the team. That This is Mays in his peak. This is McCovey in his peak. This is Cepeda. This is Gaylord Perry. Uh, this is Juan Marichal. And it's they only went to one world series because that was it. If you didn't finish first and there were no divisions, and if you're not beating the Dodgers for the division, you're not making the postseason. You're not, you're not getting a chance to kind of build off of a great season and, and have that magical run. You don't win the division. You're out. And there's like a, a beauty to that. And there's also uh, just like a real unfairness that comes with that. At the same time, now what you have is you have a team like the Oakland A's. They, they, 162 game season. That is a heck of a season. That is long, long, long. And then all of a sudden, it's over in three hours. And you know, and that's being charitable. You might say it was over in 10 minutes when Aaron Judge hit that home run. So uh, that somehow doesn't seem fair. But I think the main point of baseball is that baseball's not fair. It's it's never going to be fair. There's always going to be 29 teams disappointed at the end. Um, and this postseason, is, it's kind of the gauntlet you have to run emphasizes that unfairness. Um, I want to talk about some things, some oddities that are specific to this particular season. Uh, Whitney, I'm going to start with you uh, with uh, this player, Shohei, uh, or Shohei Otani. Uh, he's a pitcher. He's a hitter. He's a rookie. Uh, at the beginning of the season, he seemed so insanely multi-talented that I think your friend Grant described him as like the most unfair player uh, in, in maybe ever <laughs> Major League Baseball. And, and then, Whitney, tell us what happened. What happened with this uh, guy who came over? Uh, from from a, a different country and a different league. Yeah, so, you know, everyone was excited about Otani. We certainly were. Uh, he had been hyped up for kind of a couple of years now in baseball circles, and then the whole last off season was who was going to get him at this kind of depressed price uh, based on, inter, uh, you know, complicated international signing rules and, and free agency limits and things like that. So he came over, he went to the Angels, a, a team with, you know, a few very talented players on it, first and foremost, Mike Trout. And he proved himself instantly. You know, his starts were solid. He was hitting huge home runs. He was fast. He was exciting. Um, and before he had come over, he had a slight problem with his elbow, uh, with his uh, a, a ligament in his elbow, his ulnar collateral ligament, which the team knew about. Seemed fine. He had been pitching about halfway through the season. He kind of went down with an injury with that elbow. Um, and they brought him back, and they didn't have him do, you know, Tommy John surgery, which is something that, can put a player out for, you know, a year and a half to two seasons, depending on what that recovery is like and when, when in the year that he gets the surgery. Um, came back, once again, solid starts pretty much, uh, you know, again, was so exciting and kind of living up to all of the promise that we all had hoped for this player that can pitch and hit, which is something you, you know, see in other countries far more often than, uh, you know, in, in MLB. And then it turned out that he did, you know, he will get, he did just get the surgery. He did need it. Um, and, and he won't be back until, you know, at least 2020, which is so unfortunate because, you know, he kind of lived up to that promise and was so exciting. And now we don't have him for, you know, all of next season and 
who knows how far beyond that. So uh, it was a little bit of a tease, unfortunately, but the good news is he's so he's still so young, um, and you know, hopefully when he comes back, he still feels comfortable and healthy enough to pitch and to hit, uh, and he's just as good because that's something that baseball you know gives us so so rarely, uh, and the fact that he actually fulfilled the promise is incredible and it would be so so much of a bummer if when he comes back that's changed at all um so a little bit of a mixed year for him but uh yeah something that baseball really that was a a lovely surprise right and then kind of turned into bernard malamud's undiscovered japanese baseball novel um uh, which has other chapters yet to appear so grant uh, i want to talk about something that happened this year that became what we might call technically a thing, um, and, and that was this notion uh, of so-called bullpen games and a pitcher uh, who would be described as the opener. Uh, now, I don't know if, if you want to explain this for the uninitiated, or, or, or I should. I think you should explain what, what are teams doing here and, and, and why is it different? It is uh, basically eliminating, at least for one spot in the rotation or for a very specific game, it's eliminating the starting pitcher. So we all grew up knowing baseball as you've got your starting pitcher. If he gets into trouble, gets tired at some point in the game, then the bullpen comes in, the relievers come in. And it's, it was like that for over a century. And as the 90s started to to, to get more uh, power-driven and the players started getting bigger, uh, the fastball started getting faster, teams started to rely on closers more. They, they had dedicated setup men. They had lefty specialists. The bullpen became a different sort of weapon. And now what it is is you just have a day where you start with the relievers. You just have a set number of guys who are going to give you one inning, two innings, uh, you know, nothing more than three innings usually. And the Rays tried it because they were in a position where expectations weren't necessarily high for their season. They felt like they were playing with house money, and it became successful for them. They were able to have these bullpen games, and they were limiting runs. They were they were in the game. They The Rays won 90 games, which is about 10 more than anyone would have optimistically predicted them for. Um, so more teams now are doing it. Oakland did it last night. Uh, uh, in the wild card game, it didn't necessarily work, but the Brewers are going to be doing it uh, today. Uh, you know, I think the Rockies are sort of planning a little mini bullpen game. It's it's become this thing to where if you can count on a day off the next day, or if you uh, have a gap in the schedule, it just makes a lot of sense to throw your bullpen out there because statistically they're going to allow fewer runs. And everyone's known that that relievers allow fewer runs, but no one's actually had the courage to say, like, why don't they, you know, make the whole pitching staff out of the bullpen? You know, like the, the old joke, why don't they make the whole airplane out of the black box? That's kind of what bullpenning is. You know, why don't you make the whole rotation out of the bullpen? And, and it, it kind of works. But it offends you aesthetically. It's not what I'm used to. And it's it's when it fails, it looks bad. You know, last night, the A's had a reliever start. And within two batters, it was walk home run. And you just felt the the wind go out of the A's. And the guy pitching is just, just a guy. You know, he's not like a super reliever. He's not maybe one of your 10 best pitchers, maybe not one of your 12 best pitchers. And so to have that sort of guy affect the season that disproportionately, it just doesn't it doesn't sit well. It doesn't mean it's a bad strategy. It's just so easy to, to second guess, so easy to kind of nitpick. Um, you know, the selection of this specific pitcher. And it's a lot, it's, you're really juggling knives and, and hoping that all six or seven pitchers that you're going to use in a bullpen game is at their sharpest. 
Um, it, it seems like the, it introduces a lot more variables, which means it's a lot more to nitpick. All right. If we have time, I want to come back to that pitcher who's just a guy, but we might not have time. But as long as we're talking about pitchers, Whitney, uh, you know, Grant uh, talked about how baseball just isn't necessarily fair anyway. I, I think it might be interesting, particularly for Mets fans, because we should do something to make Mets fans feel like we care about them. Even if we really don't care about them, we should do something, uh, even if it's false. And, and so they have a pitcher who would probably, should probably qualify for a major consideration for the Cy Young Award, which is given every year to the best pitcher. The problem is that he's 10 and 9. So tell us more about this, this pitcher who's so great, even though he's hovering around 500 in the win-loss. Yeah, so, you know, Jacob DeGrom is one of the best pitchers in the league, I think, even before the season. We knew that. Um, the Mets came into the season with a very strong rotation that really had the promise to be something without injury and without, you know, with the team being good around them. Neither of those things happened, and the person that it affected most was DeGrom, um, who has had, you know, a record-breaking season. He finished with a 1.7 ERA, which is astonishing, um, and uh, broke a record for most starts in a row, letting up three or fewer runs. Uh, I, I believe he ended up at 28 starts in a row, which is, again, just astonishing. Um, the numbers behind him are you know, would be a Cy Young candidate or winner uh, for anybody. But again, you brought up the win, the win-loss record, which for more old-school fans of baseball, uh, more old-school Cy Young voters, is a huge barrier to giving him this award because they are more attached to that cut-and-dry, does-he-win game. In this situation, uh, it's not his fault that he wasn't winning games. The Mets just couldn't score runs for him. All season long, this was an issue. Uh, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but there was something of like, if they had scored even two runs in any one of his starts, he would be closer to, you know, that 15, 16, 17 wins. If they had scored three or four runs, he would be almost undefeated. You know, um, things like that, where that's completely unfortunate and it's completely out of his hands. And so when you're voting for something like the Cy Young, which is, you know, a, a award that is going to be, cited historically for Hall of Fame candidacy, candidacy. There's bonuses attached to it for these players. Um, you know, you have to look at it as what did the pitcher himself do? And that's a little harder for people who grew up so focused on wins and losses as the, you know, be all end all for does the pitcher win you games? Is that, you know, is the pitcher doing his quote unquote job by going out there and winning games? Um, but now we have so many other statistics that contribute to these things and that DeGrom is just either leading across the board or, like, lights out across the board. And to watch him pitch, just the eye test is, you know, beautiful. Um, and just what he does to batters. So there's so much more that goes into it. But, yeah, there's been an argument surrounding, you know, does he deserve it because he's, again, hovering around 500 over the last column. Um, and does the fact that that's out of his hands come into play? Is that, you know, fair to – to saddle him with that, or do we need to separate that out and say, you know, the Mets didn't support him, that should not decrease his chances of winning an award he very, very much should win easily. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. One of the things we need to talk about, we've talked about excellence. We also need to talk about awfulness. There was a lot of very special kinds of team awfulness this year. That's where we'll begin, where we will begin when we return.
All right, we are back. We are talking about baseball with two uh, very special baseball writers. I, I really, if you haven't discovered their work, we're going to post some links to their work uh, up on our uh, regular webpage, uh, wnpr.org uh, slash Colin. You can see all of our shows there. But, uh, I mean, if you lo- like baseball at all or if you like humor, they're both very funny writers, um, you might want to go over there and you should go over there. I'm not going to leave it. You might want to. Uh, and the writers, of course, that I'm talking about uh, are um, Grant Brisby, uh, editor at SB Nation. He joins us by Skype. And Whitney McIntosh, writer on SB Nation's Major League Baseball desk. So I, I think maybe I, I'll ask both of you to comment a little bit uh, on the subject of um, awfulness. Um, uh, Grant, there were some teams this year that really – particularly teams that had not been too bad or been pretty good three or four years ago. I'm thinking of the Royals and the Orioles who just seemed to plumb the depths of awfulness in a really kind of shocking way. Maybe you can tell our listeners more about that. Absolutely. So the the Kansas City Royals, who recently they they won two pennants, uh, 2014-2015, they won the World Series in 2015. Uh, They were ascendant. They had a a young core, a young homegrown core for the most part. Uh, They were a very, very fun team, just like it feels like a couple hours ago. Uh, This year, they lost 104 games. Now, 104 games in the history of baseball, there have been um, 65 teams, I believe, that have lost 100 or 104 games or more. Uh, so if you think about it, that's like once every two years on average, a team like this bad comes along. So it's it's not something you can expect every season to have a 104 loss team. It's historically bad. But then you get to the Baltimore Orioles. Now, the Baltimore Orioles were the team the Royals played in 2014 to get to the World Series. So this was like a clash of two teams uh, just a couple of years ago that were very exciting. Uh, The Royals played with speed. The Orioles played with power. Uh, The Orioles lost 115 games this year, which is just absolutely remarkable. It is uh, to lose that many games. It's the fifth most losses in baseball history and baseball history, of course, extending back uh, to the the 19th century. Um, They just were abominable in all the right ways. They did. They had uh, no hitting. They had no pitching. They had no bullpen. They had poor injury luck. Uh, They were just, I mean, everyone knew that they were going to be bad, but I don't think anyone knew that they were going to be this dreadful this quick, this, uh, I mean, this thoroughly. Uh, in, in 1998, uh, the Orioles started the season 0-21. They did not win any of their first 21 games, which is still a record to this day, not just for opening a season, but just a losing streak in general. Even then, even losing the first 21 games of the season, uh, they finished with a better record than this year's Orioles. Like this year's Orioles were so bad that they couldn't beat the record of a team that lost their first 21 games. And and that to me is probably the most um, remarkable factlet of, of this whole uh, enterprise. Uh, we should just quickly say that you uh, have a theory about why this happened to the Orioles. It's a scientific theory that I think is almost unassailable, and it has to do uh, with their hats, right? The hats, the Orioles caps have a picture on the top of it of a bird wearing a baseball cap, which may be the cap, the kind of cap that has a picture of a bird wearing a baseball cap on it. But you feel as though they somehow or other kind of dove out of the way uh, of this really fascinating journey into infinity. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you, once you start with birdception, you want to keep going all the way down. It's, it's, you know, it's not turtles all the way down. It's, it's Orioles apparently. And they, they switched away from those hats and you know, who knows what would have happened. So Whitney, let's talk about uh, other things. I'm, uh, there's so much to talk about and we're going to run out of time here and it's frustrating, but since we're going to, we're talking about things that can cause curses, things that can um, trigger unfortunate runs of bad luck. As a Red Sox fan, I'm looking at this whole situation with the Red Sox AL East Championship banner that uh, that fell off a truck apparently and was held hostage. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Uh, so briefly what happened, the uh, AL East champion, Division Champions banner was on its way to Fenway from the you know, the company that makes them for the, the Red Sox to hang them outside of the stadium uh, and in preparation for them clinching the division. Uh, you know, about a week before the season ended, uh, the banner fell off a truck on the way there. Uh, a couple of guys driving in Somerville, Mass, apparently saw this package uh, reportedly on the, on the highway, decided to cut across multiple lanes of traffic to pick it up. Uh, and when they got home, they, un- they you know, opened it up and realized what they had. Um, and in response to that, they publicly held it hostage for you know, hopefully they wanted Red Sox tickets, they wanted money, they wanted playoff tickets. Um, they were very kind of uh, aspirational in their request <laughs> from the Red Sox. They did a whole, they, uh, you know, interviewed with the Boston Globe. They did a video with the Boston Globe, which if you um, you go on our site, there's an article. If you go on Boston Globe site, you can find it. Uh, it's the one from outside of Boston. It is one of the most Boston things you will ever see from the accents to the, you know, the ransom request to the, uh, you know, we're just trying to be some helpful guys who we love the Red Sox kind of framing. Um, and, you know, that was, a, that was funny enough. And what happened in the end was the Red Sox gave them nothing. Uh, they returned the banner. We don't really know what happened in that exchange, whether there was, you know, a threat that they would never be allowed in Fenway again, whether there was a legal situation going on, whether, you know, the company that made the banner's involvement was bringing in any sort of lawsuit, uh, you know, threats. But the guys got nothing. <laughs> the Red Sox got their banner back, and we all got a very funny Boston-related kind of news cycle that can kind of only happen up there in a very farcical, uh, you know, Dennis Lehane novel, uh, amateur criminal type way. Uh, and it was it was pretty amusing. But they, you know, the, the original banner is hung, so hopefully that's not you know any bad superstition for for these AL champions going into the DS. Right. And I'm getting a push notification right now that both of their bodies washed up in uh, Boston Harbor today. So uh, the story <laughs> has come to a logical conclusion. No, it's very Michael Corleone, right? It's like, my offer to you is nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, well, part of, that, part of that video was them claiming, again, a very Boston, very, you know, Quincy, Somerville, Dorchester type thing, claiming that they knew some guys, right. you know, that, that could help them get things from the Red Sox or, or sell the banner, you know, oh, we know some guys. So, uh, yeah, it was very, you know, kind of all of those cliches were in there. It was pretty incredible. All right. Uh, so sort of Goodwill Hunting movie sequel to come, uh, something for Damon and Affleck to do together. Um, all right. So uh, I guess the last area, uh, Grant, and there's so many things, but one of the things that you did, I, I won't say obsessively, I won't say idiosyncratically, was to try to figure out using a highly arbitrary set of criteria, what would be the best World Series matchup? Maybe what would be the weakest World Series matchup? We certainly don't have time to go through all your permutations, uh, but sort of give you know give us kind of a flavor. Like, what would be a really great uh, World Series matchup at the end of this long pipeline? 
So I'm really invested in uh, teams that have never won it before. I, I personally am a Giants fan. They had not won a World Series since moving to San Francisco. Uh, so I grew up with this sort of like, you know, just give me one, just give me one. And, and that chase uh, for the championship, just to get that little bit of taste of success, sort of like informed my baseball fandom. So that's the most important thing to me is have these teams won recently. And you have a lot of teams that uh, haven't. Uh, the Brewers, uh, the, the Indians, the Rockies have never won in, in franchise history. The A's haven't won in 30 years. Now they're gone. But the Dodgers haven't won in 30 years. So you have all these teams that sh should have won over the last 30 years, at least statistically. Uh, but you have teams that just, for whatever reason, they keep falling into the same viper pit year after year. So that's sort of my my biggest criteria. But I also, I, you know, I like the 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 teams with players I want to watch. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. on the Braves is it's like phenomenal. He's just a, a guy that you would create in 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 like your fever dreams to want to watch and get into baseball. He's young. He's powerful. He's he's gregarious. He's everything you would want in a superstar athlete. So the teams with those players, you know, I would prefer. Um, but now that the A's are out, I mean, it's. Boy, I think the best possible matchup is probably Indians Brewers or Indians Dodgers. You're getting a little bit of the sadness. You're getting a little bit of the star power. You're getting some matchups you haven't seen before. Uh, so that's what it takes to me. I know that the, the the suits at Fox would rather just see Red Sox Cubs or, you know, Yankees Dodgers. I mean, that would appeal to them. But to me, getting a little bit uh, more granular with the, the the sadness is what I'm interested in. Right. If it's Dodgers, we could actually have, you know, FBI agents on the field arresting people during the games and stuff. And uh, that would add, add, add some drama. Uh, we don't have time to explain uh, any of that. In fact, we have to stop right there. I hate to do it uh, with Grant Brisby, uh, editor at uh, SB Nation and Whitney McIntosh, a writer on SB Nation's MLB desk. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Now what's going to happen is we're going to take a break. We're going to ask you to support public radio like we do. Uh, and when I come back, we are going to talk about specifically that Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. We are heading into it. We are, of course, the we're the Andreas, the San Andreas uh, of Red Sox-Yankees baseball. So we'll be talking about that. And if you like shows like this, if you like our shows, if you love us, if you care about whether we live or die, please contribute during our show because we actually sometimes have to kill somebody. It's usually an intern, but, you know, if we don't raise enough money, you see what I'm saying. Today's show was produced by Fat Box McPants with help from me, Moondog Wolf, Stinkbug Fish, and Sparky Geolopsis. The part of Bill Carey was played by Moose Scarin. On tomorrow's show, the Nose Talks podcasts. And now, back to Colin. So I was thinking about this last night because I was doing a forum about kind of dialogue among people who don't get along. Uh, we're going to turn this into a show in a couple of weeks. And what I was thinking is, you know, there are in this world Jews who convert to Christianity and there are Christians who convert to Judaism. And there are Republicans who become Democrats and Democrats who become Republicans. And I could go on and on. What there just isn't, there aren't. It just can't be. There can't be Red Sox fans who become Yankee fans, and there can't be Yankee fans who become Red Sox fans. All of these other allegiances are fungible, you know, even at the level of religious belief or political affiliation. It's all fungible. It's all up there on the table. I don't think I just don't think anybody's ever done this. I, I will, of course, immediately be proven wrong on social media. So you can tweet at us at WNPR Colin to say, 
how wrong I really am. But meanwhile, it's time to talk to Jack Diggy, staff writer for Sports Illustrated, where Sports Illustrated, where he published a piece last month called "What Makes Guilford, Connecticut, the Perfect Wedge Between Yankees and Red Sox Fans." Um, and I should say, as we go along here, because obviously tomorrow night uh, a uh, division series will be starting between the Red Sox and the Yankees. Uh, you may have things that you want to say, so you can call us at eight six zero two seven five seven two. 860-275-7266. So, Jack Dickey, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And, and you know, I mean, anytime the Red Sox and Yankees play in the postseason, that's interesting. Interesting things have happened. It's kind of especially interesting this year because these two teams were just remarkable. It's very hard to win a hundred games uh, in a baseball season. It's, it's special when that happens. So explain what happened this time. Yeah, I mean, I think last year you had very good Red Sox and Yankee teams, um, and it was not clear that they were ready. Um, and then this off season, uh, after both teams made managerial changes, the Yankees, of course, went out and got the reigning NL MVP, Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, the Red Sox got J.D. Martinez, who's been one of the you know handful of the uh, best hitters in baseball uh, over the last few years, and you also had um, the the fact that both teams got to play uh, 19 games against the 47 and 115 Baltimore Orioles, and you have 200 win. Uh, members of this rivalry. Yeah, so Yankees with 100 wins, Red Sox with 108, which when you get up around 108, 110, you're getting into a very, very small group of teams in baseball history. Ironically, I think the record is Seattle, which <laughs> hasn't been able to do anything ever since they set that record. But um, let's uh, talk a little bit about what's going on here. Well, let's first of all talk about Guilford, which ironically is the home of the um, producer who is producing today's episode. Uh, he is also a Yankees fan, but you wouldn't necessarily know, Jack, what he was just by finding out that he's from Guilford. Explain why that is. Right. Well, for starters, full disclosure, and, and perhaps this is why they assigned me to write the article, I am one of the you know seven Mets fans ever right. to come from Guilford. And we're so sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, all of Connecticut, I think you have uh, – you have mixing of, of Red Sox and Yankee fans, and there's some geographical component to it. Um, it's a gradient, but I don't know how much of it is is geography and how much of it is uh, you know the settlement patterns um, uh, in Connecticut. But the analysis performed a few years ago um, based on Facebook likes by a uh, Harvard student concluded that um, Guilford and uh, Manchester and Middletown were the three uh, three locations in Connecticut with closest to a 50-50 split. And um, being from Guilford, I could I could relate to that, and I uh, you know thought it worth exploring for uh, this commemorative issue we did. Uh, celebrating 40 years since 1978, uh, which was another uh, special moment in the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry. Right. We don't talk about that year. So, um, 
<laughs> so there's this other thing, and I'm so glad that we're going to get to this. I have been pestering various people about, around this radio station saying, we have to talk about this story, and it's sort of hard to figure out where it fits in. Well, thank God it fits in here. So uh, there's a Senate seat, state Senate seat uh, down there, Guilford Way, that's coming open. Uh, Ted Kennedy Jr. no longer wants to be a state senator, so the seat's open. And, and a guy named Adam Greenberg is the Republican candidate uh, representing this very area that we're talking about. So tell us who Adam Greenberg is. So Adam Greenberg uh, is a, he's not not exactly Moonlight Graham. Uh, He he debuted for the Chicago Cubs in 2005. He's a Guilford High graduate, uh, went to the University of North Carolina after that, um, an outfielder. And he uh, made his way up to the Cubs. And in his first plate appearance, you can't even call it and at bat, uh, he was drilled with a fastball in the head, um, and he suffered some uh, pretty severe consequences, and and couldn't couldn't play for the longest time. Um, I mean, just just lost his ability to hit. Um, but he sort of he 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 bounced around in the independent leagues, played for the Bridgeport Bluefish for a while. Um, and sort of got it together, and then the uh, Miami Marlins in 2012, who were not not uh, exactly a contending team, were petitioned um, along with all the other teams in baseball to give Adam Greenberg a chance to uh, add a new ending to his his big league career, um, and he he came up, he got one. Plate appearance, he did strike out, but it was, uh, you know, it was a real a real at bat where he he wasn't uh, writhing in pain on on the uh, on the infield dirt afterward, and he um, is is now running for state senate as I as I found uh, found out uh, a few months ago. Right, and if he weren't running for state senate. Probably the Orioles would have let him play six or seven games this year. I mean, you know, why not? Anybody yeah. with a fairly compelling story should contact the Orioles because uh, they might, you know, they might be win- willing to do this. Well, we should talk a little bit for people who don't remember, who don't follow baseball all that much. I mean, this is really an incredibly powerful uh, rivalry. So let's start, uh, Wolfie, with clip C1. This would be the uh, American League Championship Series in 2003. You'll hear the famous voice of John Sterling. Now we're tied at five as we go to the bottom of the 11th. Here's Aaron Boone to lead off. His first at-bat of the game. There's a fly ball deep to left. It's on its way. There it goes. And the Yankees are going to the World Series. Aaron Boone has hit a home run. The Yankees go to the World Series for the 39th time in their remarkable history. All right. And then a year later, uh, this is what things sounded like. Ortiz in the deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight. Ortiz fights it off center field. Damon running to the plate, and he can keep on running to New York. Game six tomorrow night. Here it is. Ground ball to second. Reese. The Boston Red Sox have won the pennant.
And we do have a bunch of Mets clicks, uh, clips that we were going to play just to make Jack <laughs> feel better, but there just isn't really time. I'm sorry about that. So I don't know if you want to contextualize that a little bit more, but, I mean, the, the 03 and 04 were these – you know, moments where that rival really, rivalry really came to an incredible head of steam. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people grumble about uh, baseball's playoff structure and how it's changed uh, in recent decades, but it is one of the few good things it has given us is uh, Yankee Red Sox postseason play. Uh, and they met first in the 1999 AL Championship Series. It wasn't particularly close. And then in in 03, and, and you know, the teams, I, there were some years where both teams were very good. More often the Yankees were the better team and the Red Sox weren't. But th- there was a lot of time in the rivalry where it, one team was decidedly better than the other and there wasn't much of a, a rivalry to speak of. But in 2003 and 2004, uh, both teams made it to the AL Championship Series in 2003. Everyone remembers Aaron Boone, who's who's uh, currently the Yankee manager, uh, hit that home run off Tim Wakefield, uh, you know, high up into the left field stands at, at, at Yankee Stadium, and uh, you know, broke broke Grady Little's career. Broke, uh, you know, Pedro Martinez was uh, saying he has to call the Yankees his daddy. I mean, the whole thing. And then and then in 2004, uh, you know. It, Different set of names. Dave Roberts steals the base in Game Four. Yankees were down, or Yankees were up 3-0, and uh, you know everything changed. The Red Sox won the World Series for the first time since 1918, and uh, you know it's been back and forth ever since. Uh, you know, with the rivalry on something like equal equal footing. So, you know, as we look at this series that's about to unfold on Friday night, uh, maybe as the Red Sox fan, I'll just start out and say, uh, as amazing as this team has been, it has also struck me at times that it's also amazing in that I've really seen better teams than this one. You know, the pitching, the starting pitching has been on and off with all kinds of injuries. There really hasn't really been a consistent rotation. Just about everybody at some point or another has dropped out of the rotation. Um, The bullpen is very uneven. They can look fabulous at times and but even Craig Kimbrell, their awesome closer, uh, has gone through some periods where he can't find the plate or he can't locate his fastball. Um, there are positions on this team. Third base has been played pretty much by committee uh, all season long. Uh, unusually light-hitting catchers. Um, there's a, like a lot of reasons why this team shouldn't have won 108 games, but they also had a kind of magic that I think you do need. You need sort of a magic that goes well beyond you know what you can see there on paper. I, I, now, the Yankees, maybe you can sort of sketch out the Yankees a little bit or react to what I just said about the Red Sox, or both. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the, everything you said about the Red Sox is true. I, you, could, you could have maybe you know, said that Mookie Betts had uh, maybe the best season uh, in baseball this year um, and is, is on his way to becoming, uh, you know, if not if not the among the best three players in the game he's he's in the top 6 or 7 um the the Yankees uh and I was at the the wild card game last night the Yankees are uh a team with a lot of talent um and last year you know I think they surprised people Aaron Judge certainly the uh 
towering young outfielder um, had had a season that you know everyone will remember. Finished second for MVP, won the Rookie of the Year. This year, Judge was not quite so good. He was still very good. He was hurt for a while, and it, it kind of hampered his swing. And uh, the Yankees traded for Stanton, as I mentioned before, and he wasn't quite as good. He hit a lot of home runs, but didn't really have that amazing season people wanted. Luis Severino, their their ace pitcher, uh, got off to a great start. I mean, he looked, he and Chris Sale, the Red Sox ace, were neck and neck for the, the Cy Young Award at the All-Star break. Now uh, Cy Young Award will probably go to Blake Snell of the, of the Rays. Um, and, and Severino had a sort of inconsistent back half. The Yankees tried to trade for a bunch of starters to sort of uh, give them some depth, if not the, the top-tier talent uh, that they – that championship teams usually need in the rotation. So I, you know, I mean, all of this is kind of pointless because anything can happen in a five-game series. Exactly. You've got two lineups that are fallible, but they're also successful, or whatever the opposite of fallible is. We're going to have to stop there. <laughs> uh, Jack Dickey, staff writer for uh, Sports Illustrated, and he has published a piece last month, What Makes Guilford, Connecticut, the Perfect Wedge Between Yankees and Red Sox Fans. Thanks for listening. Here come the nice people. Tell the nice people that you would like to support this show in particular and this station in general with your generous donation.